but if you are new here, I want to just tell you a little bit about what you've gotten yourself into this morning. Uh, we are in a series in the book of Psalms. Uh, we're studying the Psalms together this, this summer. And the Psalms are a collection of prayers, a collection of songs in the Bible that you could say serve like roadmaps to our relationship with God. Uh, as we find ourselves in a wide variety of experiences in our day-to-day -day life, uh, the Psalms give us a kind of roadmap for how to engage with God in the midst of those experiences. Uh, and as we do that, they, they teach us how to pray. Uh, they show us how to know God and how to experience Him in all the very real ups and downs of life that, that you and I go through. Now, in this series over the summer, we've looked at how Psalms guide us when we feel troubled. Uh, we've looked at how Psalms guide us when we feel spiritually dry and anxious. Uh, we've looked at how song, uh, Psalms lead us when we're bearing the weight of guilt or when our hearts are just full of praise. Well, today I want to consider how one Psalm guides us in prayer, uh, specifically when we feel unstable or unsteady, uh, when life just feels unsure. I think this psalm, Psalm 90, is especially helpful. Uh, the title of today's message, if you like titles, is The Source of Our Stability. And I want to read with you Psalm 90, starting in verse 1. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reasons of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you has, have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, this is, Psalm 90 is one of my personal favorites. Uh, I hope many of you are reading the Psalms with us right now. And uh, I'd encourage you to just make reading the Psalms a habitual part of your Christian life. 
And I think as you do that, you'll begin to experience, you develop your own favorites. Uh, Just as the particular circumstances of your life begin to resonate with the Psalms you're reading. Because they're meant to do that. They're meant to resonate with us. And they're meant to connect with us uh, as, as we change. In fact, the way we engage with them changes. So really the Psalms just get better with time. It's a part of the Bible you should read over and over. And I've experienced that with Psalm 90. I've actually preached this this psalm before in years past. But my appreciation for it has changed as my life has changed. Uh, My first eight years of marriage, my wife and I moved four times. I changed jobs four times. And we had four kids. Uh, It was a sweet time in many ways. God provided for us. He guided us. Um, But it was not what I would call stable. Uh, It was maybe anything but that. Maybe some of you can resonate with that. I'm in a very different season of life now. Uh, In the 12 years since then, I've only moved once. I've only changed jobs once. And I've only had two more kids. Okay, maybe that's not all that different after all. Uh, But okay, it's a little less unstable than it was maybe back then. But, but I have in these years felt instability, uh, but in different ways. Uh, in my extended family over these years, there's been more deaths than births. Maybe some of you can, can resonate with that. A generation that you look to for stability and guidance is passing on. Maybe you increasingly find yourself as coming into the place where others look to you for that kind of steadiness rather than you receiving it. Others of you feel this perhaps every day, just in day-to-day life, because you live in a nation where you weren't born. Uh, And you you have to survive in order to do so. You have to speak a language that perhaps is very um, unfamiliar to you. It's not your heart language. You have to navigate government systems and social circles that, that are unfamiliar, that have customs you don't know. And maybe you're here and you're very glad to be, Yet your everyday experiences seem to whisper to your heart, this is not home. And you just feel that in your day to day. Many of us experience this financially. Your job or your income is at risk. We experience it with our health. We could go on and on. Sometimes life can feel like nothing is just settled. Like nothing's bolted down. Nothing's sure, and we are constantly on the verge of just losing our sense of stability, even once we feel like we found it. Whatever has you, perhaps, feeling a little unstable today, whatever's calling your sense of security into question, I want you to just have that in mind right now. And now let's look a little more closely with that in mind at the psalm. The first thing it tells us is who the author is. The prescript says, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Now, if anyone in all of the Bible knew something about not being settled, uh, knew something about living life on the road, you might say, it was Moses. If you're unfamiliar with Moses, or maybe it's been a while, just a quick refresher, Moses was, was born into slavery. In a land his people had come to in order to escape a famine. And when he drew his first breath, he was already in a place where he didn't belong. And he was also born under the the national threat of infanticide. All the babies were being put to death. 
And so his mother attempted to save his life, and he ended up being taken in by the daughter of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And so he grew up, he spent his upbringing as a foreigner in the house of the man who was enslaving his family. And as he grew up, Moses saw the burdens of his people. And one day he was so overcome as he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, that is his people, he was so overcome with anger that he killed the Egyptian and hid the body. And then word got around and Pharaoh came looking for him. So the Bible says Moses fled to a land called Midian. And so now he's gone from being a foreigner to being a fugitive. And he carries the the weight not only of being an outcast, but now he carries the weight of grievous sin that someone's hunting him down for. Then, after he spends quite a time sojourning in a land of wilderness, uh, shepherding flocks of sheep around the wilderness, God comes to him in that wilderness. And God calls him And he commissions him to go back into Egypt, the place he had fled, and to lead his people out of slavery. Very, very long story, very, very short, he did. Uh, After confrontations and plagues and Passover and uh, spreading the Red Sea and deliverance from the army of Pharaoh, uh, God uses Moses to deliver his people from slavery. And he promises that he will lead them to a promised land where they will finally be free and at peace. But soon after, the people started to to grumble. They started to complain. They wanted to go back. And so God kept them wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And until an entire generation had passed away. And so Moses spent 40 years leading God's people in tents, camped together, wandering around in the wilderness, waiting to finally get to this promised land of rest. Think about this. Just humanly speaking, Moses spends most of his life with one destination in view. Daily preoccupied in every waking moment for decades to get God's people to God's promised land. That's the goal. But just before they arrived, Moses' anger and frustration with the people gets the best of him. And he takes matters into his own hands. He does things his way rather than God's way. And as a result, God says he will not go into the one place on earth he had most longed for. And so before the people cross over to the River Jordan into the place God prepared for them, Moses gets a look at it from across the shore, and then he dies. This Moses, a man who never really had a place to call home, prays this prayer. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. In this prayer, Moses recounts what's true about God, what's true about life, and then he asks for three things to help us make it through. The thing he recounts about life is this, God is our home. God is our home. 
dwelling in Scripture, if you think about it, is often about God dwelling in and among us, that He dwells amongst His people, like the the tabernacle that had been amidst the camp of, of Israel. And that's true, of course. But conceptually, it can give us the wrong impression that somehow um, we are big, our camp, and God is somehow the, he's in it, but he's smaller than it. Now, of course, that's not true. But this psalm, this prayer, flips that whole concept on its head. And it looks at this idea of dwelling the other way around. And he says, no, God is the one who's big, and we dwell in him. In other words, God is our home. Homes are meant to be a place of refuge. It's a place that's safe. There's a roof and there's walls that protect us from the elements. There are locks on the doors. Maybe some of you got a whole lot more than locks. And the idea is we're keeping harmful things out, right? Homes are also typically a place of provision. It's a place where meals are made and shared. There's usually food in the fridge, unless you've got teenagers, and then it just kind of gets inhaled right out of the grocery bags, you know? Home is also a place of rest, where ideally, with your stomach full and your mind freed from the threat of harm, you sleep. Provision, protection, rest. These are the kinds of things we hope to find in a home. Moses is saying, God, you are those things to us. You are our protection. You are our provision. You are our rest because we dwell in you. And because we do, we have all we need. Moses is in a total wilderness. He has wandered in for half of his adult life. He's never had a true home on earth. And now he is looking into that promised land, a home he has anticipated for decades that he knows he'll now never enter. And in this moment, he says, Lord, you are my home. Not just mine. He says, you are our home. You are the source of comfort and stability and rest. And then he goes on. In verse 2, it might sound like he's kind of gotten off onto a rabbit trail or something. Like it might not be clear how the two connect. He says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. What's the connection? Well, he's reminding us that God is eternal because the reality is homes on earth change. They can become unstable. The very places that we hope to find that source of of rest and provision and protection at times can become a source of great anxiety. And in and of themselves, they can become a place of of fear and trouble and awareness of lack and need, and it's, it's painful. Moses had experienced that. And what he says here is this truth, that God never changes. When everything else does, God does not. And so that means that our home with God is eternal and secure because God is eternal and secure. He is loving. His steadfast love, we sing, never comes to an end. 
And so when God is your home, you don't have to fear that it's all going to get swept out from under you. The kind of temporality we feel about the nature of our day-to-day lives, we don't have to sweat that when we think about God. Because God was here before it all started, and he's going to be here long before it ends. That even something that seems as stable as mountains, maybe some of us have gone to seeing this summer, they all had a birthday, and they all have an expiration date. And God was here before them, and he will be here long after them. The fact that God exists eternally, the Bible actually tells us, is something we all instinctively know. It's just printed in our hearts that when we we go to places like the beach and we go to places like the mountain and we behold these incredible sights, something in our souls just said, man, this didn't just show up here by accident. Uh, Something about this is purposeful and massive and bigger than me. And what our hearts are telling us, whether we know it or not, is that God exists eternally. And there's something about nature that, that screams thus at it. But Romans 1 also tells us that we have this tendency to deny that truth in the way we live. Actually acknowledging that you owe your existence to somebody else is humbling. It's humbling. It means you don't belong to yourself. It means no matter how many times you quote the poem back to yourself, you are not the master of your own destiny or the captain of your own ship. That lots of storms can blow you off course. That you and I do not have control, and that can be scary. So sometimes in order to maintain a sense of our own self-importance or self-control, you and I pretend that God doesn't exist. But God's word is refreshingly and brutally honest about the facts of life. I love that about it. It's not trying to pull one over on you. Uh, God is not here trying to present himself as better than he really is or or life is better than you really have perceived it to be. He's like, no, it's it's hard. And so that's actually exactly what he gets into in the next section. Moses begins to prayerfully reflect upon this truth. It's point number two. It's very creative. You've never heard it before. You ready? Life is short. You heard it here first, folks. Life is short. But what Moses does is not only remind us of this life is short, so seize the day, carpe diem kind of thing. He he presents that to us theologically. He helps us understand why from God's perspective, life is, in fact, short. But the basic point here is that God lives forever, but everybody else dies. You can't work out enough to live forever. I'm sorry. You cannot eat enough raw, organic, probiotic, you know, whatever the ick is, ism thing is. You can't eat enough of that uh, to live forever. It's just you're going to wear out anyway. You can't become intellectually enlightened enough. You can't get enough letters after your name or enough degrees on the wall to keep yourself living forever, uh, forever. Someday you will die. And this psalm is just like, hey, it's honest. Our bodies are like grass. They grow up, they look great, the sun comes, and they wither. And in case that wasn't a positive enough message for your Sunday morning, (laughs) Moses takes it a step further. Not only are you going to die, so is everybody else. 
Have a great Sunday. Let's have lunch. No, it's sobering, but it's important that we face reality honestly. Because human beings, man, we can tend to be so fascinated with other human beings. I mean, it sounds weird when you talk about it like this, but it's true. We kind of gawk at each other, uh, right? We go to sporting events and just are amazed at what these people do on the field. Uh, we, we put forward the most attractive people on our marketing ads and all these sorts of things. We are wowed by these abilities and by this beauty. And it's not that those things are always bad. I love sports. I love music. But I want to keep those displays of human ability and strength in perspective. Talents, Moses is helping us see, are here one day and they're gone the next. God's abilities never diminish. Uh, he, he doesn't grow up and then wither. Nope, he's been doing it for a long time. We spend a lot of our time fearing other people, that they might come in our house or break into our cars. We fear, fear that they'll harm us. We, we fret about what they think about us. We worry about our reputations. And it's just helpful just to remember God's saying their life, the life of those people you're so afraid of, it will pass like the blink of an eye. God is the one we should fear, not them. And it's, it's total. He says death is like a flood. It's got a 100% success rate. It wipes out everyone indiscriminately, however strong they may think they are. So why is it, again, looking at this theologically, why is it that the eternal God brings death to men? Well, verses 7 through 11 show why. Moses says it's because of God's righteous wrath for sin. It's the simple truth that death exists because sin exists. We now live in a sin-sick, fallen, broken world. And the reference in verse 3 to dust is, is hinting and pointing us back to the curse in Genesis 3.19. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the garden, he told them, you are dust. And as a result of this fall to dust, you will return. Death is a rightful part of God's righteous judgment against sin. Verse 8, Moses says, and you know what? God sees it all. I wonder how a man who committed murder and who had taken matters into his own hands at the height of his calling to lead. I wonder how Moses wrestled with the reality of his own sin. And he's recognizing here, God's, God's seen it all. I hid the body of that Egyptian in the sand, and God knew exactly where it was. But again, it can be refreshing in its honesty. It clears the delusions, and it kind of throws a cup of cold water in our faces to help us see that these two lives, lies we often believe, are not true. The first one is that we will never die, and the second is that we can hide our sin. It's simply not true. And so Moses brings that to our attention. Now, if I may be so bold to somewhat interrupt Moses' prayer for a moment, I want to say that you and I have the benefit today of looking back on this prayer 
through the vantage point of the cross. You and I today have the knowledge that we have violated God's law. We have transgressed against him that in his holiness and justice, uh, he righteously does view our sin as wrong and and deserving of, of wrath and punishment. And yet God himself, the one who we have so grievously sinned against, made a way for us to be forgiven and set free. He sent his only begotten son so that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, would not receive that righteous judgment, but would be forgiven and set free and would have a life of eternity with him. And so Jesus came, he took on human flesh, he lived the life of perfect obedience to God that you have not, and I have not, and then he died the death that our sins deserved. And in his body, he bore the punishment of our sin. He bore the just wrath of God. And then on the third day, he rose in victory over sin and over death and ascended to the right hand of the Father. So now each and every one of us, as true as it is that we all deserve the righteous judgment of God, can leave here without it. Can leave here leaving that righteous judgment on Christ at the cross and knowing forgiveness and newness of life, new birth in the Holy Spirit by simply believing, by simply trusting in what Christ has done for us. This is our response. This is the response that God calls us in light of the gospel, in light of this truth that our sins are not secret and that our life is indeed short. But thankfully, uh, Moses does not leave us hanging. He gives us this last point in in the last few verses, this truth, that knowing God's love and power which we now can have through faith in Christ and the gospel, knowing God's love and power makes us stable. After going through all the fleeting nature of life, you'd think Moses would be depressed, but he's not. After facing up to reality, Moses in this psalm does what we should all do in similar moments. He asks God for help. That's the biggest lesson of this whole series. Start talking to God. And when Moses comes to this gripping sense of reality, he goes to God and he asks him for help. I love the way one author talks about this kind of realization of harsh realities pointing us to God. He says, a person has to be thoroughly disgusted with the way things are to find the motivation to set out on the Christian way. As long as we think the next election might eliminate crime and establish justice, or another scientific breakthrough might save the environment, or another pay raise might push us over the edge of anxiety into a life of tranquility, we are not likely to risk the arduous uncertainties of the life of faith. A person has to get fed up with the ways of the world before he, before she, acquires an appetite for the world of grace. Moses has come, I'll give it to you in just a minute. Moses has come to the end of this stark reality. He's like, you know what, I don't have an appetite for security in the world anymore because it's fleeting. I have an appetite for grace. Oh, God, help me. I hope many of us are making that transition right now. 
lose your appetite for stability anywhere else and turn to God. When you can't trust in your own righteousness or your own power, then the only way you can know true security in your life is when you trust in a God who is powerful and loving. If God were only loving but had no ability to do anything about it, he wouldn't be worthy of it. If he were only powerful but we weren't confident in his love, he wouldn't be worth going to because we wouldn't be sure he would actually work in our interest. God is both powerful and loving. And in light of that reality, Moses makes three requests. He asks of God three things so that you and I might make it through this unstable world. First, he prays this. Help us to live wisely by understanding we won't live forever. Teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. The book of the Bible that is about that whole theme is the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is sometimes viewed as kind of the, the cynical brother of Proverbs, you know. Um, Proverbs saying all these happy things. Hey, if you train up a child on the way, uh, he will go. When he grows up, he won't depart from it. And Ecclesiastes is like, sometimes he will. <laughs> uh, he's just giving us all the exceptions. But Ecclesiastes is reminding us like, hey, cup of cold water, number your days. It's like a mist. And when we have that reality, then we can gain a heart of wisdom. Then we can begin to learn things. Ecclesiastes says, like, better is one handful of quiet than two handfuls of toil and striving after the wind. When you know you only got a few days left, it's better to have a little bit in peace than a lot in turmoil, right? When Ecclesiastes says things like, it's better to go to a house of mourning than the house of feasting, all of us read that like, that's nuts. I would much rather go to a wedding than a funeral. I like wedding receptions much better than wakes. And naturally, that's totally understandable. But Ecclesiastes is also showing us that not many people gain wisdom from a wedding reception, but a whole lot of people gain wisdom from funerals. There's something about grappling with the brevity of life that can make us wiser. So he says, God, help us to do that. Help us to number our days so that that kind of wisdom will be mine. Then he says, help us to be satisfied with your love so that we're happy despite our circumstances. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Oh, what a contrast that is <laughs> between the frenetic frustrating mornings so many of us live through versus the mornings when we leave the house absolutely confident in the love of God for us. We approach our whole lives differently, good and bad, when we are confident and satisfied by, anchored to the love of God. Romans 5.8 says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that's how we can know God loves us. Even if you did something as crazy as kill an Egyptian and bury him in the sand. God shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, not before we cleaned up our act. While we were yet sinners, Christ 
died for us. A greater love has no man than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. God graciously gave us his son. How will he not also then graciously give us all things? That's prayer number two. God, help us to be satisfied in your love so that we're happy and even when we've got no other reason to be. His third prayer is help us to see your power so we are established. He prays it twice. Establish the work of our hands. Establish the work of our hands. But he says that happens when we see this, when your work is shown to your servant. Apart from the power and love of God, there is no true security. It's difficult to hear, but it's true. We simply do not have control. There is no amount of protection sufficient to keep you from all harm. It's impossible to protect ourselves emotionally from harm. But knowing that you belong to an all-powerful and good God establishes and gives meaning to everything you do. If, if God is our home, what he is like is extremely important to us. What your home environment is like is important. And if God is your home, you need to know what he's like so you know what kind of place you're living in. And one of the things this tells us is that the environment of that home is stable, is steady. The one who rules it never loses it. He doesn't lose his cool. He doesn't lose his ability. He doesn't get sick and have to check out for a little while. He's always got his hand on the rudder. And because that's true, because we live and move and have our being in that kind of environment, we can actually do our work with purpose. We can actually do our day-to-day -day duties with a sense of confidence that because God has placed us in him, he's going to steady us and he's going to steady our work. So it's actually through realizing our lack of control and developing a confidence in God's ability that we can do the day-to-day -day and the nine-to-five and the Monday-to-Friday in the way God intended. So let me just ask you before... I pray for you. Where does your heart find a home? Where do you tend to, to go for a sense of security? It might be a certain relationship. Man, as long as this is good, I'm good. It might be, might be the job. Man, as long as I know every other week that check is coming in, I'm good. It might be an actual house. Let the word just remind you this morning, Moses' prayer, if your security rests ultimately in anything on earth, it's not a matter of if, but when it will let you down. The psalmist says, you can do this. You can come to the one who created all this, who's in control, and trust him to be your shelter. Trust him to be your home. Jesus picks up, I think, actually on this theme when he's talking to his disciples and he's telling them he's got to go somewhere and they start to feel unstable. They've been walking with him every day for several years at this point. And Jesus is like, hey, just guys, heads up in a little bit, I'm going to be out of here. And they're like, what? You're leaving us? Like, what? 
what's up, where are you going? And, and Jesus says, don't worry, you'll be able to come with me. And they're like, how? They're unsteady. And Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Friends, you have a future. It's like uh, nothing the promised land could have even imagined. Uh, You are walking through an unstable world, steadied by the steadiness of your creator God, and being kept for an inheritance of a home that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading. That's what awaits you. And if you rest in God, he's going to get you there. So friends, let's get rid of this false idea that you and I are in control. You're not, I'm not. What I do have and what I desperately hope you have is confidence that you and I are securely held in the power and love of an almighty, eternal God who will never change. Let's pray. Oh God, as the hymn writer said, oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our refuge in the stormy blast and our eternal home. As we remember your power and love, help us to be like that tree planted by streams of living water, steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.